With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Except I'm shorter and not as cute. Other than that, a lot of similarities. Thanks a lot for checking in tonight. Great to have you along for the ride. We're with you until 8 o'clock. Jack Michaels. The one and only play-by-play voice of the Edmonton Oilers will join us between 7.30 and 8 this evening. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. We'll uh, touch on a few things with Jack. I'm sure you've seen by now Don Shula has passed away, the great NFL coach, the uh, coach uh, best remembered for his years with the Miami Dolphins. And, of course, he won two Super Bowls with them and led them to that undefeated season back in 1972, a 14-game season, and then they won three playoff games, including the Super Bowl, to go 17-0. and The Patriots of, uh, heck, that was, what, 12, 13 years ago already? They had a 16-0 and regular season, won two playoff games to get to 18-0, and and then lost the Super Bowl, largely in part because of David Tyree's helmet catch late in the game. So the Patriots... One more games than the Dolphins total, but they didn't win their last one, and they finished at 18-1. and one. If you would like to check in tonight, I'm always happy to hear from you. Hope you're doing well. The number to both call and text, 780-496-0063. There continues to be a lot of speculation about if, when, how, where the NHL will finish its season and then transition into the next regular season to discuss some of those storylines. Welcome back to the show, senior hockey writer at sportsnet.ca, our buddy Chris Johnston. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, Reed. Uh, under the circumstances, certainly no complaints uh, from my end of things. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, we talk usually a few times throughout the hockey season, and I don't know if we've ever done an interview uh, through a time like this well I, I know that we haven't what what's it been like for someone who covers hockey on a on a national level there are stories out there obviously and a lot to talk about but certainly uh i'm assuming your routine has changed quite a bit for sure you know i i imagine like everyone i guess in a sense that the most the biggest change is being home all the time uh, but especially with the kind of job i have you know i travel around a fair bit throughout the season you know like yourself i'm going to games so i'm working nights and odd hours and and you know essentially i'm living like a normal person now sleeping in my my same bed every night able to go to bed at a decent hour because there's no games to cover and and not getting on airplanes as often as i usually do so you know some parts of that have have been positive on the family side uh but you know now that the weather's getting a little nicer the there's an itch to want to go outside but uh you know i'm still following the rules and largely staying indoors as much as i can yeah i'm wondering chris because i've said on this show a few times I'm I'm not a big fan of sitting and watching an old hockey game from the 80s or the 90s or even some of the Oilers playoff games that were replayed from 2017. I just I I find as I've gotten older I have trouble watching stuff that I've already experienced. You know what I mean? I'd sooner do something new or or watch something new. Have you found yourself in front of the TV for any of the the old games cuz generally I I haven't. 
No, I really I hope my bosses aren't listening because I haven't watched too much. You know, there was uh, one of the Saturday nights early. I, I just tuned in that they had a game on uh, the old Leafs Battle of Ontario somewhere around 2002 or something, just more out of curiosity to see what it looked like and what it sounded like with Bob Cole and Harry Neal. But, you know, I would say for the most part, I'm in the same camp as you. I mean, what my wife and I found, though, is we, we've just been devouring every documentary that has anything to do with sports. You know, we watched the F1 series. We watched Sunderland Till I Die. You know, we've been, been watching the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, uh, that, that's been getting rolled out here. And so that's kind of giving us a little bit of a sports fix. We're both sports nuts, but you know, I'm with you. I, I don't really get, get drawn too much to the old games for whatever reason, but I'm still trying to to get my, you know, get, get a little bit of that uh, feeling of watching sports again through, you know, some of the things that Netflix offers. I've been watching The Last Dance. I've been enjoying that, and not a documentary, but a but a sports themed movie that I enjoyed last weekend. I watched it. Chris was Ford versus Ferrari, about uh, the the uh, twenty four hours of Le Mans and Ford trying to win that race. I don't know if you saw that one, but it's a, it's a really good movie, and you know the egos involved with the owners of Ford and Ferrari, and then the characters played by Bale and Damon, the guys doing the groundwork to actually get this car uh, to an elite level in a very short period of time i haven't seen that but i'm going to take you up on the recommendation because someone else has mentioned it to me as well so the, the universe is telling me something there <laughs> yeah i think you'll i think you'll enjoy it for sure well chris as we move through this and i've been asked a lot what do you talk about in your show i said well there's actually a lot to talk about unfortunately a lot of it involves cancellations certainly in the edmonton area and in alberta we had lots of events leagues either canceled or postponed last week so we're talking about that on the national level of course the the nhl is is uh, the story and we still wonder if it's going to come back and if edmonton could possibly be a venue for hosting games i mean i know things kind of ch- can change daily or even hourly with this bill daly confirmed on bob's show edmonton would be a candidate what's your sense of any sort of a timeline the nhl might have to want to make a decision on ultimately completing or not completing the 1920 season well, they seem to feel as though they have a fair bit of time to make that ultimate decision. You know, it's certainly not one, you know, evidently and obviously they're not going to make e- easily the potential to cancel the entire season. You know, I've sensed a fair bit of optimism, um, you know, at the top levels of the league that they feel that there's a way to get this done. You know, I think once they've made this, this sort of mental um, adjustment or, or, you know, they, they prepared themselves to start next season as late as December, maybe even January, which I believe they've already done, um, if not in a, in a formal way, kind of informally, they understand that that's likely where this is headed. You know, it really doesn't, we're not just talking about the summer now as a possibility to play what's left of the 2019-20 season, but, but, you know, some of the fall. And so, you know, I think that we're still a ways off sort of a, a quote-unquote do-or-die date or where the decision has to be made one way or the other. You know, I think really, honestly, at this stage, what it hinges on mostly is their ability to secure the right amount of testing, uh, you know, to do so without obviously impacting what, what's available to citizens. And, and I think, you know, that is, is currently stepping up as a major hurdle. There's obviously a lot of logistics to work out. But, you know, right now, this week, you know, the league is, is going to wade through the proposals they've received from cities like Edmonton. And, and I think that there's a very good chance uh, if they are fi- able to find a way either to, to jump to a 2014 playoffs or, or whether they are able to finish a regular season, that, that Edmonton would be one of the cities. You know, the 
the, the big thing for, for doing this, you know, obviously is to, to get the business up and running again, to start making money and honoring TV and sponsorship contracts. And so, you know, weight against that is, is the expenses are important. And I think, you know, where they can uh, hold these games in Canadian cities, they, they'll look to do so because we, we have somewhere around a 70 cent dollar at the moment. So there's some good cost reasons. I think Edmonton makes a ton of sense because of the way that the setup is there with the arena and the practice rink inside the, you know, a nice hotel right across the street that they can keep the bubble pretty small if they do end up using that area. And so, you know, I know Edmonton is, is probably one of the favorites to, to host those games, but of course we, we still don't know. And I think it'll be some time before we know definitively whether they're actually going to be able to, to play those and find a way to get the season in. I wonder too what ultimately the the players will have to say about this. I, I know there was that story from uh, Philippe Deneau a few days ago and, Larry Brooks from the New York Post reported that some players might balk at the idea of staying in a hotel in another city for weeks on end. As you know, Chris, I, I work on our Oilers broadcast with Rob Brown, and he said when he was a player and he was thinking back to when he had twins, he said there's no way he could have committed to going away for you know, 10, 12 weeks to play in another right. city. He said a road trip was, was hard enough to, to leave his wife behind with the kids. Well, and I, I do think the league is sympathetic to that and, and probably, you know, even understands that it's one of the major issues that, that have to be solved. And, and, you know, it's it's probably a little premature to say what that'll look like. But, I, you know, I do know that some of the hotels that have been involved in these bid processes have submitted numbers for, you know, what would be required for the teams and the players and then what would be required for teams, players and families. And so, you know, it's at least a consideration right off the hop that potentially – you could have families, you know, living within the, the bubble, so to speak, that is set up here. I, I would think if, if that either isn't feasible or maybe isn't something that makes sense, you know, you, you're going to have a situation where players are allowed to leave or maybe their families can visit for a period of time but, but don't have to be there full time. You know, I, I think that both the league and the players understand it's important to, to try to finish the season if they can and that they have to find ways to work together to reach those aims. So, you know, I haven't sensed this being as much as it kind of sparked as a conversation point last week after, you know, told the reporters in Montreal, you know, I don't think this would pass and it won't happen. You know, from behind the scenes conversations I've had with both the players association and the league, I don't get the feeling there's a fight going on here. I think that both sides recognize this is an issue that, that has to be addressed, that there, there won't be a scenario that makes sense that players, uh, you know, be away from families that long. And, and I think ultimately they won't ever ask to be, uh, you know, having to do something like that. So if, if we move into December or January for the start of the next season, I mean, I'm just thinking, Chris, I know they've said they want to play a full next season, 82 games and full playoffs. But if, if it moves into January, is that possible? Or are we looking for more of a lockout shortened schedule type scenario? I, I think it would be lockout shortened, especially if we got into January, you know, even late December, you know, I've had people suggest to me that work for teams that you're, you might be looking at like a 70-game schedule if, if it's in the second half of December starting. I mean, we can start chopping off games from there as the weeks potentially go by. And, and you know, I think also at this point, I mean, we're, we're really at the risk of getting too far ahead of ourselves. But, you know, the fall-winning Stanley Cup, I think, mentally is probably being handed out in July 2021. Now, I think that they'll extend next season deeper than they would in a quote-unquote normal year. Uh, but that still has to be wrapped up and taken care of, I'd think, at least a week to 10 days in advance of the Tokyo Olympics because that's a, a major pro, uh, you know, TV product of, of NBC in the U.S. and, and NBC is the NHL's main rights holder. So, 
you know, they, they can kind of stretch 2020, 2021 season to maybe around July 15th, give or take. Uh, so that'll give them some time maybe to play more than, than you would even see, you know, say when the, the 2013 lockout ended, they got 48 games in and managed to get the, the, you know, starting in January and managed to get the cup out by the end of June. You know, there's probably a way to, to play a little bit more than what we've seen in the past uh, with a January start because they are willing to go deeper, but uh, it can only go so far. And, and really, I think what we we're all starting to realize in a, in a very meaningful way here is that, you know, what we're dealing right now with the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is going to affect the NHL, but but all sports leagues for years to come. There's going to be a ripple effect to the decisions made, you know, in, in the short term here to try to finish this season. But I think it's going to change kind of the sporting calendar for, you know, multiple years moving forward before, I guess, enough time is there to, to get back on kind of the, the rhythm we were used to. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to end with a lighthearted one. We we both said we're watching the last dance about the Bulls of the 1990s. Dennis Rodman, a big part of that team. Has there ever been an NHL equivalent to Dennis Rodman <laughs> in terms of the flamboyance, the unpredictability? I don't know if there has been. I don't know if there's ever been I, anybody in the NHL that's gone that far. <laughs> I don't think there's anyone on that level, but, but probably the closest that comes to mind is Sean Avery just in his willingness to put himself out there and be different and, and was rather outspoken. But, you know, I certainly, uh, you know, I don't think he was on the same level as Dennis Rodman was, but, but, you know, Avery had his moments and, and sort of was a bit of a bad boy across the line with the league a few times, uh, you know, Ward is welcome with teams at times. I don't know if he dated Madonna. He might've uh, as Rodman did. So I think that there's some, at least, uh, small C crossover between Avery and, and Dennis Rodman. <laughs> yeah, well said. Hey, Chris, glad you're doing well. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for giving us your perspective as we move through the pandemic. Take care. Yeah, thanks, Reed. And I'm glad to hear everyone's uh, largely staying safe there at Edmonton. Uh, look forward to seeing you guys soon. All right. Good to talk to Chris Johnston from Sportsnet. Had some fun with that last question. He thinks Sean Avery, the closest NHL equivalent to Dennis Rodman. Yeah, probably right. Probably right. Uh, I, I would say, I would say Rodman was more of a contributing player to his overall team success. But maybe in terms of the ability to agitate and uh, be a little controversial away from the rink or the stadium. They might fit the bill there. And you heard what he said, and there, there is so much to consider with the National Hockey League, but there is something else that he brought up that we're starting to hear, that playoffs may be into the fall and the next season starting in December or January. And if it went into January, then maybe not quite a lockout-shortened season, but maybe a 60-gamer. And then next July 15th is when the 2021 Stanley Cup would be handed out. So maybe the 2020 Stanley Cup is awarded, let's say, November. Uh, they take a little bit of break over December and Christmas and come back with a regular season in January. So many things to consider. As we know, the NHL is is pretty determined, trying to look at every avenue they can to present a Stanley Cup in 2020 to finish the season. And maybe that means we don't quite get a full regular season next year, which, you know what, I've often said, I, I wouldn't mind seeing a 70-game regular season. I think that would fit the bill a little better. 780-496-0063. How about that virtual Kentucky Derby? We'll talk about that when we get back.
Seattle Slough, who comes down to the final furlong in front. Secretariat runs at him. American Pharoah is in the center of the track. Citation is down toward the rail. Into the last 16th. Here comes Secretariat in the middle. Citation on the inside. Then Seattle Slough and American Pharoah. Here's the finish. Secretariat has won it. Over Citation. Then Seattle Slough affirmed an American Pharoah was fifth. In the Kentucky Derby Triple Crown Showdown. All right, there's a horse race. Not a real one. <laughs> That's the virtual Kentucky Derby that they contested on Saturday with all the Triple Crown winners of all time. And the favorite secretariat did win it. Kellen, did you happen to watch this? I didn't know, but I'd, I would. Uh... I would. I would suggest people give it a Google. You can just Google virtual Kentucky Derby video, or or it'll be on Twitter. And when they first show the shot of the horses starting, I'm thinking, what is this looks real. I mean, the, I, we all know the graphics are, are so good, and, and we knew that there'd be some sort of video of it. But what, once the race starts, you can sort of realize, okay, the, all the horses sort of look alike and their, their strides are all the same. But it was actually pretty interesting to watch. They, they had the, the guy calling the race, and – it was pretty exciting. Secretariat had to rally at the end to just beat out Seattle Slough mm. at the wire. So the virtual Kentucky Derby is in the books for the first time ever. Wow, that was, uh, that was kind of fun to watch. So that, that was the that was the call. That was the call of the race. <laughs> Secretariat, greatest athlete of all time. Can you count a horse as the greatest athlete of all time? I'll probably ask Jack Michaels that just because I try to say things that might get Jack fired up. And as we all know, still one of the greatest moments in inside sports history since I've been hosting it, uh, Jack Michaels did call an ostrich race early in his broadcasting career, an absolutely legendary recounting of that here on Inside Sports. 780-496-0063 is uh, how you can call us. Or text us, Jason writing in, he says, uh, Reed, total pipe dream, but I feel the NHL draft should be moved to a 19-year-old draft. I know it will uh, never happen, but but the uh, bottom line is it should be a draft for 19-year-olds, not 18-year-olds. I don't mind that idea. I, I do think that if a player is maybe you say if you draft an 18 year old, it has to be in the first round because Connor McDavid as an 18 year old clearly was good enough to play in the NHL as have other players along the way. Uh, you know, 19, most players and, and uh, Jason wrote another text in uh, later, 95% of the players that are drafted don't play in the NHL the first year after being drafted. So a 19 year old draft does not hurt many of them as they progress their timeline to the National Hockey League. I think that's a really interesting thought. I, I'm with you, Jason. Probably would never happen. I wouldn't mind seeing a 19-year-old draft unless, uh, you know, unless you are taken in the first round. Then you could take an 18-year-old in the first round and maybe there'd have to be some uh, provision that he'd have to play a certain number of NHL games rather than going back to junior. That is an interesting one. And... Uh, Scott says, as for Sean Avery, that guy is money on Instagram. He's a good follow. I do not follow Sean Avery on Instagram. Maybe I'll have to check it out. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jack Michaels, when we get back, Inside Sports on 630 Chet. start thanks for spending part of it here on inside sports on 6 30 ched we are with you from seven to eight every weeknight that is a temporary adjustment to the schedule as we deal with the major news story of the coronavirus pandemic so we have global news hour at six simulcast off the television from six to seven i am very pleased to welcome back to the program and obviously those of you listening are pleased as well because i've already received a couple of uh, questions for Jack on the text line. It is the radio voice of the Edmonton Oilers, my buddy Jack Michaels. Hello, Jack. Nice to have you on the show. I do draw quite a few texts, don't I, Reed? I'm very popular. Yeah, you you are extremely popular, and you you're just one of those people that always gets a reaction out of people. Like, was it did that start for you? Like, like did the did the doctor who birthed you? give you an extra hard spank on the bum when you came out because he was like he was just like god this baby's just getting under my skin already well my <laughs> as my dad likes to tell any crowd any situation any age group uh my first official act as a child was a massive bowel movement so um <laughs> i don't know whether i left an impression that i was looking uh, for as a nine-pound new, newborn, but that's uh, that's what he loves telling people. In fact, I think he told that not only at my high school graduation, but college graduation, rehearsal dinner, pretty much any occasion where it might evoke the maximum amount of embarrassment, that story tends to come up. All right. Well, you had not told me that one, so I'm glad now I know something else about you, Jack. Even after almost a decade, I continue to learn new well, things you about you, which is nice. you have a way of evoking my best-kept secrets on this show, so you should, uh, you, know, you should take some solace in that, regardless of how many listeners you lose as a result of some of my other comments during my many appearances low these many years. Okay, a couple things off the text line. I, I mentioned, and I, I, I'm not expecting you to tell the whole story again because you've done that numerous times. But Anthony says, Reed, can you play Jack's ostrich call? I don't, don't have, have that. Uh, nobody don't has have it. it. Lost in the historical archives. Do not have the ostrich call, much as I'd like to. 
But uh, that was a historical race, and and certainly as I think back to the first live sports event that I covered as a professional, I'm not sure anyone else out there in the North American landscape can say that their first live sports event was between two ostriches, one ostrich with a regular starting line and the other ostrich starting 100 yards ahead, albeit with a 480-pound man strapped to his back. So, Anthony, if you want to hear Jack call an ostrich race, you have to arrange one yourself and then see if, you know, there could be something worked out, a fee, an ostrich stake, where Jack would come call the race. Emphasis on the fee. Yes. (laughs) Cowtown Bob writing in. He says, please ask Jack if he agrees with the contention of Brian Hall that horse racing is the most difficult sport to call play-by-play for. Wow, that's that's interesting. Uh, Brian Hall made that assertion? I, apparently he has in the past. I have never heard him say that, but Halsey, as you know, has done a variety of sports and used to be uh, do stuff at the track at Northland, so I, I assume at one point he would have said that. So he says horse racing is very, is, is very difficult. And as part of a... A challenge at Northlands a few years ago, I went in a media competition and had to call a horse race. And I actually won, and then I got invited back to call one more race. And there's a lot going on in a short period of time. I can I can vouch for that for my limited experience. Well, first of all, I'm a little hurt that I was not invited to that media challenge. I don't even know if you were here yet, to be honest with you. I don't think you were even in Edmonton yet. Secondly, I've got some information for you on that, and I'm not sure you're even aware of this, Reed. Prior to my taking a job in Colorado Springs for my first minor league hockey job, I was offered a job to call Greyhound Racing for a track owned by George Steinbrenner in Tampa in 1996. And I actually called Greyhound Races into a Morans and sent the tape in because they wanted to see if I could call a Greyhound Race in that particular point in time. But, of course, the, the problem with that theory is I did it a couple of times i obviously didn't send him my first take like i I probably called three or four races and then picked the best one and sent it to him so i've actually had that experience and again i'm probably one of the few people you know that was offered a a job to call in this case greyhound racing i can't answer whether horse racing is the toughest to call i will tell you this and you've heard me talk about this uh, you know, in, in a variety of different formats, is I consider a hockey game a bit of a horse race. You want to establish a buildup and then hopefully have an exciting finish where you, as the horses, as the track announcers, you'd like to you'd like to build to a certain crescendo. And I, I feel like a horse race uh, with a good hockey game actually carries a similar pace throughout. Okay, so when you call it the Greyhound race... Yeah, and look, I I've seen greyhound races when I was Those in Vegas. Those are shorter than horse races, obviously. right? That's what I was going to say. How many? Like, I I bet on a few when I was in Vegas, but how many dogs are usually in a race? What's the duration? What are we looking at here? As I remember, it was kind of like the backstretch. You know, in other words, when the when the horses come out of the turn, that's where the greyhound races started, and then I think there was you know six dogs, as I remember. You know, again, I was working off of VHS tape. I mean, this is how primitive the situation was back in 1996, I think it was. 
that I auditioned for this and, and got it, was offered it, but similar to the, you know, the world wrestling thing, I turned it down because I didn't want to get pigeonholed as a greyhound racer. Maybe you could have been, uh, you could have been pigeonholed as a pigeon race. You're all about the wrestling thing, right? I've told you that story before, right? Uh, have you? I don't know if you have told that whole story. Yeah, Kellen's w- really excited now. Yeah, WWF at, at that point it was still the parent company was still went by Titan Sports. This is the winter of 2002. Uh, flew me first class from Anchorage all the way to you know New York City, and then. Uh, limoed me up to Stamford, Connecticut, and I was offered a six-month gig with, I can't remember whether they were WWE by then or WWF still, but I remember the parent company was still Titan Sports because I was first really excited that I saw Titan Sports, and I'm like, if memory serves, that's WWF. And same thing, I, you know, I just didn't want to get pigeonholed, and it was a six-month no-guarantee contract. In other words, Six months, they were able to cut you loose, and all you had to show for it was, I think they offered me sixty grand. And I just, you know, I was newly married, and I was going to be on the road, I think, for a hundred and, if I recall correctly, it was 166 out of 180 days over that oh, six-month period. And I, I, I turned it down. And, you know, again, you never know whether you made the right move or not. But, yeah, that's, that came in my first year while calling uh, – Aces hockey. I, I think you mentioned that to me, but I don't know if you went into that much detail. And that's wow, that's quite the travel schedule. Two two weeks at home in six months. Yeah, it was something like that. I remember they laid out the schedule because they were they were very upfront. I mean, it it was great. And you know who I you know who I interviewed at that audition. So what they did was they had to call a few matches, and then you had to you had to do some sort of commercial. They wanted you to do, do a commercial off the cuff where you invented a product based on something on their executive's desk. And then they actually brought in a real-life wrestler for you to interview. Remember, this is 2002. Do you have any guesses as to who that would be? I'll give you a hint. It's local. Kellen, I'm going to let Kellen guess. Kellen will know. Go ahead, Kellen. I know exactly who he's talking about. Uh, The Wolverine Chris Benoit. Correct. Chris Benoit. And then four years later... Or four or five years later, whatever it was, that whole thing went down tragically with his family. But, yes, it was Chris mm-hmm. Benoit. And they wanted to see how you reacted in a situation. So he actually, you know, kind of grabbed me around the neck and got, and got you know, pissed off at me. I mean, I was that was one of the most nerve-wracking auditions I've ever had. I mean, because I, I didn't know. I mean, I honestly did not know. He he sold it awfully well when he got mad during our interview, and I did not know what was coming down the pike. So where did you go for this, Jack? Stanford, Connecticut. I was right, flown in just outside York of Hartford's their they, head office, right? Yeah, and then they limoed me up to uh, their their compound in Stanford, Connecticut. And I, I mean, again, I don't know whether they're still there. WWE has since taken another bump. I don't think they go by Titan Sports anymore. I could be wrong on that, but yeah, that's that was uh, the fall of 2002. And you didn't meet McMahon, did you? I did not. No, I no. did not. I, this was, again, an entry-level job. You know, six months, 60 grand calling. I'm sure it wasn't like, I'm sure I was, I forget what, I think they were doing two different shows at that time. One was called Raw, and I think I might have been doing the other one if I had accepted it. 
Was, is that right? Does that sound right? I, I don't know. Like when I grew up, it was just there was no like differentiation between shows. But at the time, they were kind of running two competing shows or something like that. Was it, is that when it would have been Raw and SmackDown, Kellen? Don't they have that again? Yeah, yeah th- there that's you go. completely Smackdown. correct. That's actually when it first started was the uh, summer of 02 was the brand, what they called a brand split between the two there shows. So. That's, that's exactly what it was. So mm-hmm. I think I would have been doing SmackDown. Oh, that's a, well, you would have been good at that, Jack. You got a lot of energy. I thought about it. I mean, I did think about it. But again, I just, you know. I mean, look, Jonathan Coachman went back and forth between wrestling and ESPN. I think he's back with wrestling now. Jack Michaels joining us on Inside Sports. It's quarter to eight. Before the 7.30 news, I played the stretch call, well, Kellen has the audio back at the studio, of the virtual Kentucky Derby with Secretariat overcoming Seattle Slough to win by a head in a race of the, uh, what, the 13 Triple Crown winners. All right, yeah, that Jack. was a good idea. I mean, Secretariat, they, uh, if you want to watch something that really holds up to this day, watch the 73 Belmont on oh, YouTube. Like it's amazing. Yeah, and that, that, that guy calling the race is unreal. I mean, that, that's, just a, that's just a great moment in sports history. And, you know, again, nothing against the other Triple Crown runners, but, uh, you know, <laughs> from what I've seen on tape, they don't hold a candle to Big Red. Okay, so then here's my question for you. Secretariat, greatest athlete of all time? You know, the ESPN took a lot of heat because when they did their Sports Century series, I don't know whether that made its way up to Canada. It was, you know, 1999, they did a huge Sports Century series. And I think Secretariat checked in around eighth. And they got a lot of heat for that. You know, he finished ahead of Mickey Mantle or whatever. And uh, they they got a lot of heat for calling Secretariat the greatest athlete of all time. He was certainly the greatest horse of all time. I, I don't know whether I don't know where I stand on that position. Reed, I try to be as prepared as I can for these shows that you have me on, but we have uh, we have covered so much ground in this interview. I, I've forgotten what stories I've told you, and I certainly. I uh, can't weigh in on whether or not Secretariat was the greatest athlete of all, of all time. You're going to have to give me some kind of, you know, lead in or prep time if you're going to have me debate that. I can argue okay. almost anything. I'm not ready to argue that tonight. Okay. Well, and I just sort of came up that on the uh, the spur of the moment as well. Okay. So I found a list here. I think in the end they decided to omit Secretariat after. Oh no, they got sorry. They got him 35th. They got him 35th. I just Jeez, found I a page. remember him being like eight. Yeah, I'm, I thought I'm there surprised. was some story. Just let me double check if I'm looking at the right one. Sports Century, top 50 American athletes of the 20th century, original series. Uh, this is... And they have them at 35. Maybe. I'm yeah, this came out in 1999. Yeah, no, it was 20 years ago. Maybe my memory's playing tricks on me. I well, there could have been other lists. He was in the top 10. Okay, here here was their uh, here was their top five. I'll count it down from five to one: Wayne Gretzky, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, Babe Ruth, Michael Jordan. And they, I had, would, so they had Jordan one, right? Right, and I would be tempted to put Ali one. You got to have Ruth up there. Here's here's the thing about Babe Ruth: the most Jack. important sports figure of all time. 
I think the most important sports figure of all time was Muhammad Ali. He was, even as compared to Michael Jordan, I would say no sports figure since. Maybe Tiger Woods, but Muhammad Ali literally for about 10 years was the most famous man on the planet. I mean, there's there's a difference between just being, you know, dominating your sport and being the most famous man on the planet. And I and I feel like Ali reached a level that even Jordan and Woods did not reach. And of course, Tiger Woods, you know, we talk about that sports century list. You'd, you'd probably wind up with him at least in the top twenty on that list. Well, if it were done thing, today. If it were done today. Oh, if it were done today, sure. If you went back over the last hundred years from now, or the last fifty exactly. years, exactly. Woods, may, Woods, he'd probably be number one in my mind. But Ali, you make a good point about Ali being an important athlete, and the and look, I I was not alive during his, or I was very young, I suppose, during the tail end during of his, his real dominance. His, yes, exactly. Right, but. But the stories about him weren't just about his boxing. They were about his personality, his willingness to embrace the spotlight, you know, the, that he would actually take stances on social and political issues. I mean, what well, does Tiger Woods Reed, really believe in? We don't know. He was a guy, Reed, that, and again, it's a little bit, there's a different perspective in this country. But I know in the United States, he was one of the guys that started to turn the United States against the Vietnam War. I mean, that's pretty significant as an athlete to actually have that kind of an impact. And, and trust me, uh, you know, my parents lived through that, obviously, and they tell you absolutely Muhammad Ali was one of the most influential figures. I'd backtrack a little bit. I would never put Tiger Woods ahead of Jack Nicklaus. I, I just want it. I mean, he just, he, you know, he, did, he hasn't done what Nicholas has done. I mean, Nicholas won 18, but also finished second 19 times. And I would say to you that Jack Nicholas's uh, rivals uh, compared to Tiger Woods, there is no comparison, not in his prime. I think Phil Mickelson in Woods's prime has the most majors of anyone else with five. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. you look at Nicholas, you've got Palmer with seven, Watson with eight, Gary Player with nine. I mean, you know, he played against killers. Tiger Woods played against people who were scared of him and uh i would so i would i would yeah, so, I, ahead of woods see, on any I, list i have woods uh, i have woods ahead of nicholas i i mean woods woods had they had to change the way golf courses i mean they they, they never jack proof golf courses they had to tiger proof golf courses and when tiger started playing in the in the 90s I mean, it was still kind of older school technology. It wasn't the, the you know, the metal woods hadn't taken over yet. He well, was still I mean. using. I mean, Jack Nicholas is using archaic equipment. Oh, I mean, sure. What is, but but what Tiger, Tiger at the beginning of his career was using that type of stuff, too. I, I don't remember Tiger Woods up there with a persimmon wood. I really don't. Okay, I mean, not to that extent, but the equipment wasn't. I mean, it was 25 years ago when Woods burst onto the scene. And, I mean, he was overpowering golf courses, and it wasn't all equipment-related. And I would argue Ernie Els was a pretty darn good golfer. You know, Duvall had uh, – you know, you know, Woods had – Duvall had, had his Duvall run. won one major. Sure, but he was a really good golfer. Uh, and, wow. I mean, there were other well, guys I mean, that rose really up. They're all good golfers, Reed. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, mean I, I, I just – I would have put 
David Duvall on any list of of rivals we were talking about. And I'm telling okay, you, okay, but if you're Jack saying Nicholas, that if, you, if you're saying Nicholas throw the ball 25 yards past his rivals when he burst on the scene too, he had the same effect in terms of the power game for sure. Now they didn't have the technology to start moving Earth around the way they did when Tiger rolled around, but. So, so your point is your point is well taken there. But still, Jack Nicholas, you look at his record. I think it is the British Open. You look at his record for twenty years. He wasn't out of the top four. I mean, how is that even possible? Twenty years in a row, he wasn't out of the top four. From sixty-three to seventy-nine, I believe. So seventeen years of the British Open, he didn't finish below the top four. And, and again, I it's be, it's between those two guys. It to okay. me, it just comes down to Woods. And if you look, I mean, Tiger Woods won uh, won a U.S. Open by fifteen strokes. That's he won true. his first Masters by well, I can't remember what me, it was, but and you probably have me on the global the global impact. Woods brought more people into golf than Jack Nicklaus did. Absolutely. So again, you'd be weighing you'd be weighing a little bit of what he did. Uh, but if you look at just what he did, Nicholas. Nicholas's record is better and un, and unmatched and probably always will be. Well, if it's ju- if it's if it's major, if you just go by majors, it's Nicholas. But again, if you just go by tournaments won, then it's Woods, right? So well, he yeah, he has more tournaments won. But if you go by tournaments won, then you have to inject Sam Snead in the equation. I mean, that's the that's the that's the problem with some of those tournaments. I mean, ultimately, golf has become defined by the majors, and Nicholas was the guy who brought the majors to the landscape. Boy, well, we're next, all over the place, Reed. What else? Well, you got ne- next time you're well, we have to go. Next time you're on, we'll we'll debate the third greatest golfer of all time. Maybe that's more interesting. <laughs> we have to go. Like, did I already use up twenty five minutes? It, it's almost eight o'clock, Jack. Go go spend time with your family. They miss you. Is your show over? Have I brought a curtain down on your show? We're, we're, it's almost over. I'm only on for an hour now, buddy. It flies by. We'll I will get, take satisfaction. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Action and knowing that I brought the curtain down on your show. I'll feel pretty good about that, actually. <laughs> That's Jack Michaels. We're back after the break. It was 12 shots, the 1997 Masters. Tiger Woods won the 1997 Masters by 12 strokes ahead of Tom Kite. I was struggling to come up with the exact number. The Woods Nicholas debate. One of my all-time favorite debates in the world of sports. Thanks to Jack Michaels and Chris Johnston for coming up on the show this evening. Kelly Rudy on the show tomorrow. Dave Campbell's the producer of Inside Sports. Kellen Kennedy, your studio producer this evening. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thanks for listening. Take care. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.